This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour on the airwaves emanating from the broadcast antenna of KPCG 101.3 FM and radiating over the homes and workshops and pastures of rural Edmond, Oklahoma and streaming online, of course, through kpcg.fm and through the trumpet.com slash radio where you can listen at your leisure as you drive or work or relax or whatever you might be doing at the moment. You have chosen to bring us along with you for the ride as you are doing it and we appreciate that indeed. I've said this to you before, but I I think I have yet to fully convey it. We do, I do, sincerely appreciate the fact. I'm repeatedly surprised by the fact that of all the many, many ways you can spend an hour, you chose to spend it with us, and many of you have chosen to spend an hour with us last week and the week before and the week before that. So whether you've been listening for years or for minutes, Thank you for sharing this time. Your time is valuable, maybe even more valuable than you realize, but we will strive to make these minutes worthwhile to you wherever you are today and whatever you are doing. I'm your host today, Philip Nice, and it is good to be back with you, Trumpet Hour listener. Jeremiah Jacques and I alternate hosting this Wednesday edition of the show. We usually rotate every other week, but for the past two weeks, you've been with the estimable Mr. Jacques and with me the two weeks prior. So we were all used to left, right, left, right, left, and then we had a little left, left, right, right, but now we return to our regular cadence. Today's show brings you two distinct courses of food for thought. That's how I thought I would <laughs> describe these, these two segments. Uh, the first is prompted by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry drawing major attention this weekend to the January 2024 edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet and one article in particular. He mentioned the infographic, that's the center spread chart that uh, in this particular edition highlights the 1,000 Key of David programs he has recorded since 1993. We are approaching the 31st anniversary of the Key of David television program, go to thetrumpet.com and click watch, and you can see 20 of those 31 years of program archives. We hope to get back to posting the first decade or so as well at some point, but you can click on one of those at random and decide for yourself how well it holds up 10, 15, 20 years later. But the focus of Mr. Flurry's comments actually wasn't the 1,000 Key of David programs. I thought that would bear mentioning, but the focus of what he was referring to was rather a specific article, one of the shortest articles in this issue that is floating through the mailstream to mailboxes as we speak, thetrumpet.com slash subscribe. And that article is what he focused on for most of his remarks. And we're going to highlight just that one article with our first segment and our first guest, which is staff writer Josue Michels. But when last you and I were together, we were thinking about Thanksgiving Day and what we human beings have to be thankful for. We have so much to be thankful for. Just this human experience, this human life, the fact that the creator of human beings ever created human beings. And in the second of our two segments today, we consider something specific about the fact that human beings find themselves having been created to be creators. We reflect the existence and in some ways the nature of our creator and what we create, these monumental-sized creations that we create, reflect something about us. So in the second segment, Sam Livingston joins me 
for what we can learn about what the creations are creating. So for our first segment, I have with me Josue Michels. Hello, Josue. Hello, Mr. Nice. Josue is a staff writer for The Trumpet. He's also a translator for the German language, and he hosts a podcast, the German Trumpet Podcast, on the sister site, the German language site of the thetrumpet.com. He also keeps a close eye on German foreign policy, on German politics, and on one leader in particular that we're going to talk about. But I've invited him on the show today because Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry over the weekend drew special attention to the article that he wrote in the upcoming January 2024 edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet Magazine. And that's the article that Joe Sway wrote called, Who is Defining Disinformation? And if you will take Mr. Flurry up on his admonition, pay special attention to this issue of the trumpet, but particularly this article. It's on page eight, who is defining disinformation. You'll see that promoted on the trumpet brief. If you've subscribed to the trumpet brief email, you'll see it posted soon online on the trumpet.com, the January 2024 edition of the trumpet, who is defining disinformation. That's the article we want to focus this segment on. And Josue, you've written about this topic. You've written about Germany, your home country, extensively over over the years that you've been on staff and on your podcast as well. Can you give us a sense of what this is about? Who is defining disinformation? That's right. I think we all became very familiar with censorship over the last few years. As you realize, the media, they all have spoken with one voice and dissenting voices have been censored from the public discourse. And that begs the question, who decides what the mainstream media says and what they are not allowed to say and what voices to pluck out of that public discussion? It raises some question because we have free speech in the Western world, especially in the United States, but also in Germany. And there have been quite a few protests, but The government suppressed it, the media ridiculed those protesters, and there seemed no way to stand up against it. So you have to really wonder who makes those decisions. Is it the government? Is it an institution? Is it one man? Who is behind all of that? That's a great way to introduce this, I think, because as you said, we all know now for sure that information is being blocked. We know there's a war over control of it, and it's hard to say, like we can see things from the Twitter files and from different things that have come out that there's bias at Google, there's bias at Facebook and, and some of these other tech giants. But there is something really surprising about it that you just mentioned. And that is that many times they speak with one voice, right? Like, I mean, our media, even the large media, is supposed to be a reflection of us. They're supposed to be competing with each other. <laughs> They're competitors. ABC News, CBS News, CNN, Fox News. These are supposed to be competitors. Obviously, their leadership and their, their rank and file come out of the general population. So you would expect to see, and we have seen historically, differences of opinion in the reaction 
to coronavirus, we saw clearly that there's something that is achieving a a large amount of control over the messaging. And it's not too much of a surprise that there's a war, that there's a struggle for influencing how Fox News portrays something, influencing how MSNBC portrays something. That's a powerful tool, and human beings are always going to try to grab the powerful tools. But there's something surprising about how these competing networks, these competing sources of information are speaking with one voice, and this article attempts to uncover some of the reason for these national, international sources of news speaking with surprisingly the same voice. So what does this begin to uncover about who makes those decisions? Right. So you have to see the BBC reports about a subject the same way as someone else does. And Twitter censors you or used to censor you exactly like Facebook censored you. And then you have to see like who is the one that provides the information, who provides the fact-checking, the basis. We heard a lot about fact-checkers too. They all had the same message. And at one point I saw an article and it was from Politico. But the information they drew on was about the conspiracy theorists in the midterm election. And where do they get the information from? It was the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Another example was BBC accusing Elon Musk in an interview about allowing anti-Semitism. And that was before the outbreak of anti-Semitism that we saw recently. And who did they cite as an example that investigated and said that there is indeed an increase in anti-Semitism since Elon Musk took over? It was the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And then Spotify, for example, also took on the Institute for Strategic Dialogue when they were criticized for allowing COVID misinformation. And they said, we can't fact check everything. So they took on that institution, that think tank, and they were calling the shots. And especially after November 2020, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue took on a special role. And it is interesting because the German government that very month funded the Digital Policy Lab of the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And it was set with the purpose to safeguard democracy. Now, democracy is safeguarded by the people that are voting, but this one had some different objectives. And then came January 6th and a protest. And what happened there was a mass media hysterica trying to explain what happened, trying to portray those protesting as insurrectionists. Everyone used that term insurrectionist. And one of the institutions behind it was the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. The Library of Congress published their research on their website. Now that's interesting. It's the US Library of Congress. And the Institute for Strategic Dialogue is foreign-based headquarters in the UK. It was founded by a corporation between Germany, France, and the UK, and a digital policy lab specifically funded by the German government. But somehow they needed their research to report about a domestic protest that happened in the capital. So there are lots of strange things where you can see that this institute 
is very focused on what is happening in America. Journalism, we always say in journalism class, journalism doesn't always tell you what to think, but it always tells you what to think about. So we have some thoughts about what this particular Institute of Strategic Dialogue is all about. But the important thing is for you to be aware of it, to think about it. The Institute for Strategic Dialogue, there are so many nebulously named institutes out there, think tanks, you know, international groups of people who seem to just sit around and talk and somehow make money and exert some kind of power that's hard to define. What we're trying to do is to define the power that it's exerting, trace it back to its source. And so this is a German, French, British organization founded in 2006. So it's been around for about 17, 18 years. And its whole goal and purpose for being is to control information, to control how it flows or if it flows, and to define what is ISD-approved information, disinformation, misinformation. And as you say, I mean, I I can understand that there's a war for control of information. I understand that. That's pretty self-evident. But when you see that things that are plainly false have been uniformly presented as true and vice versa, and that there are certain organizations and certain individuals, as we'll get to now, who are behind that. And you know it's wrong. You know, some of the things that it's been covering, some of the messages that it puts out are definitely wrong, not just biased, but wrong. And you realize the unison that message is repeated with, right? There's no chinks in the armor. There's no cracks. There's a very strong, united, international one message that's coming from places like this and that's coming from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue specifically. You have been keeping an eye on it for a particular reason because of a particular man. And that's here in this article as well. Short article, less than two pages. Who is the individual that drew your attention to the Institute for Strategic Dialogue? Yeah, that's right. An institute can never make any decisions. There's always someone behind it. And that's why it's also, as you mentioned, so obscure sometimes. We hear so many institutes and there are so many that are involved in fact-checking. But there are a few individuals who actually have some power and have some influence over other people and who have influence over those institutions. And one man that our editor-in-chief, Jeff Louis, has drawn attention to again and again is Karl Theodor zu Gutenberg. Now, in the past, he has praised European Union legislation that has sought to really put control over the Internet through data regulation and other things. He really praised that because he thought the European Union needs to lead in those kind of things. But it was always leaning against American companies. They want to decide what Facebook can do with its data and what I can say. And Gutenberg really liked that. And now I saw his name on the board of directors of this institute. And it's right in line with exactly those kind of thoughts. And it represents very much the message that he portrays when he speaks in interviews. And it's the same message that he wants people to hear. Like he's very opposed to President Donald Trump and his institute is as well. 
He says he fights for the rights of LGBTQ people. This institute does as well. So there's a lot of things that the institute and him agree with, as you would expect if you, someone sits on the board of directors. But I know some people just sit on boards of directors and that's all they do. But you really have to focus on the one man. It's often one person that controls things. We have seen that in America with President Barack Obama, how he influenced things when he was in politics here and he really still has all the power in America and it's because he got control over the media they were backing and supporting him they were his loudspeaker and they still are you rarely find a critical article about him and you wonder why is there no investigative journalism that really targets those individuals and we can see some strong parallels as our editor-in-chief also pointed out between Obama and Gutenberg And that really is interesting. If you look at Edited Institute, you see its policies, but look at the individual that our editor-in-chief has drawn attention to. He has drawn attention to Carl Theodore Zu Gutenberg for years now. I don't know if you know the first time he... 2009. 2009. Okay, 2009. This is before he became Minister of Defense for Germany and then resigned due to that plagiarism scandal. 2009 is the first identification of this man as a man to watch. Based on, as you and I have been working on for the Trumpet print edition, Herbert W. Armstrong's identification of Franz Joseph Strauss as a man to watch and his political heir, if you can call it that, or political scion, Edmund Stoiber, and then his grand scion or the next generation of that type of leader, in Carl Theodore Zu Gutenberg. So again, just to, just to boil this down, number one, if you don't do anything else, just lodge Institute of Strategic Dialogue in your mind. Look for that to come up. See what you can find on it, on it yourself because of this one particular individual that Mr. Fleury has kept an eye on. And as you and I were just saying a little bit earlier, Josue, there are other former defense ministers. You know, there are other financial technology consultants. You know, there's a whole bunch of other people involved in the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. You can't find his name on the Wikipedia page, for example. So my point is that this is a man who's easy to overlook. Like you said, people are noticing what Klaus Schwab does or what George Soros does or what Barack Obama does. And they're beginning to watch those people more closely. I don't think anybody that I know of has a dedicated Carl Theodore Zugutenberg watcher, <laughs> such as, as yourself, uh, obviously do uh, a number of other things as well. But that's one of the things that you're devoted to watching, to monitoring news about him, not just in the English language, but in your native German language, where obviously there's a lot more to be found. But the point that I think people need to understand is that we do know there are coordinated, official, powerful lies that are still being advanced. Like you said so well, there's a source for that, and it's not just an institute. Institutes don't do anything. People do things. People make those decisions. And as we're watching this man in particular, here he crops up in the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, helping advance the official lie that COVID lockdowns were necessary, that the 2020 election was the most secure in American history or whatever they say, that January 6th was an insurrection, that climate change necessitates the self-destruction of the United States. These types of official coordinated lies, institutional lies, we might call them, 
So you've been led to watch him by Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry. What are your thoughts, just before we go, final thoughts on where Carl Theodore Zugutenberg and the Institute of Strategic Dialogue are right now and what's behind all this at the deeper level? Yes, we live in a very, very interesting time right now where more and more people are waking up to the reality that they are being lied to. And they're focusing more and more on who are the ones that put out those lies and who are the ones that are deceiving us. But so many people, the vast majority of mankind does not realize how really deep the lies are going. Because we look to the Bible as our source of understanding, we realize that all mankind have been deceived by Satan the devil, and we can read that in Revelation 12 verse 9. We know that he is the author of lies. We can read that from John 8, 44. And we know that he is using individuals to deceive mankind. He has used Adolf Hitler to deceive a whole German population where they marched toward the sure death at times because they believed those lies. They felt heroic. They felt patriotism. These men were deceived without knowing it. And we see that all around, but so few today see how deep the deception is in every part of our society. And the Bible warns of an individual that will rise in this end time, that Satan will be using to deceive mankind on an even larger scale than Adolf Hitler has done. And we are warning about the rise of this man. We do not know exactly who this man will be. The Bible doesn't put a name in there, but God does give us more and more details. And through our editor-in-chief, we are guided more and more toward in one individual. And that's why we are watching that individual, not because of that man, but because of the Bible prophecies that he might be fulfilling. So we really want to draw attention to the Bible's prophecies that have been written thousands of years ago. One particular in Daniel 8 where it talks about truth being cast down. If you feel like the truth is being cast down today, you are experiencing what this prophet has been writing about so many years ago. And you are experiencing just the beginning. And the Bible warns that even you will be deceived, are already deceived, And unless you hear God's word and believe it and act on it, you cannot break that deception. So we have one article from Mr. Gerald Louis that was really momentous in this regard, and he wrote in July 2019. It's titled, Germany is taking control of the Internet. And again, he pointed to one man and said, quote, Soon we are certain to see whether Gutenberg is already working behind the scenes against America. End of quote. And we're seeing more and more evidence that this individual is behind exactly just that. So that's July 2019. Germany is taking control of the Internet from the Philadelphia Trumpet. That's a great quote that you gave us there. That's on the Trumpet.com July 2019 edition. You can get most of the back issues of the Philadelphia Trumpet in digital form there at the Trumpet.com. But people think God, Satan, Book of Revelation, Book of Daniel, Father of Lies, that's religious, that's vague, that's hard to get your mind around. But as you indicated there, and as the listener should think, you tell me, are you experiencing deception? And are you experiencing a coordinated, planned, official, institutional level of deception? Is that a real thing that exists 
in your world? Do you see it affecting others? Do you see it affecting yourself and your family? Well, is there a source for that or is there not? Well, there is a source, and Josue Michels, through this story that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry pointed to this past weekend, who is defining it? Disinformation, you're leading us to some specifics about where this type of deception comes from. So thanks for coming on the show to do this segment and to point us to who is defining disinformation in the January 2024 Trumpet. Thanks for having me again. Again, that was Josue Michels, a staff writer for thetrumpet.com, commending to you the article Germany is taking control of the internet back from July 2019 by editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry. I commend to you the who is defining disinformation sidebar short article in the January 2024 edition of the trumpet which is on the way to your mailbox now on the way to being posted to the trumpet.com as I speak and also the upcoming edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet, the February anniversary edition of the Philadelphia Trumpet magazine, the editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry will be writing on this topic as well and showing us uh, who to keep our eye on, partially because of what has emerged in the news, partially because of what we're able to monitor in German language news and English language news, and partially because of what has not already emerged and what we don't already know here at the Trumpet or anywhere else and that is to say that we are watching Carl Theodore Zugutenberg because of Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry watching Carl Theodore Zugutenberg, tracing him back to Edmund Stoiber, tracing him back to Franz Joseph Strauss, and tracing him back to the work and the warning of Herbert W. Armstrong, Plain Truth Editor-in-Chief in Broadcaster of the World Tomorrow program. So it's left to you to bookmark the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, Carl Theodore Zugutenberg, in your mind, and to watch what does emerge in the coming weeks, in the coming months, from that man, from that institute, from Germany, and from the rising Holy Roman Empire there in Europe. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Welcome back. Trumpet Hour, KPCG, on the air here in Edmond, Oklahoma, on 101.3 FM and online at kpcg.fm, as well as thetrumpet.com slash radio. I'm your host, Philip Nice, and we have been wanting to bring you this particular segment for months now, maybe more than a year, if I think back to when the ground was first surveyed, so to speak, the cornerstone was first laid for the idea for this segment. We've had this topic on our mind in a general way for some time at any rate, and it's something we don't usually think about, we being the average person, and yet it is literally all around us. And when I say we, I mean I, your humble host, Philip Nice, as well as Sam Livingston, who joins us now in the studio. Hello, Mr. Livingston. Hi, thank you for having me. Sam Livingston is a staff member of the broadcasting department, a producer for Trumpet Daily, and he is a regular contributor of hosting duties for the Trumpet Daily, so you have heard his voice before. So what we're talking about here in this segment, I am just genuinely excited to be talking about. It's been called the built environment, the world that we have built, so to speak, here on the surface of the earth. Not that which the creator has created, but that which the created 
have created this combination of the elemental need for shelter in the first place, but also the mathematics, the engineering, the artisanship, the labor, the art, the expression that's all part of this topic for this segment, which is architecture. So, Mr. Livingston, what do you notice about the importance, first of all, of the built environment of architecture? The importance, I'd say, I mean, like you said there, it's an environment that we all exist in, (laughs) and we all dwell in these buildings, we work in them, we live in them, and it does impact you. Usually when something's right or it's functioning the right way, you are not going to notice it. (laughs) When it's wrong, you're really going to notice it. So if you're living in a very ugly home, you're going to notice, okay, this is an ugly home. If it's nice, you're probably just there. But trying to appreciate your environment and taking note of, okay, what are the things that make me happy to be in this building? What are the things that make me unhappy about it? Like, how do you feel? What is that environment like? I mean, there's so many examples, like the typical office building that you work in, not exactly the environment that is going to promote creativity. And you see that. You see people, I mean, like the CEOs of these big tech companies, they're trying to redefine the office building to make it a more inspiring, thought-provoking place for their employees to be in. So they obviously recognize architecture, your environment impacts the way that you think. And that's I think what makes architecture so important. Right. I think your environment impacts the way that you think. We were just talking before the show about how architecture, the built environment, wherever you are, dear listener, you are either in architecture or you are driving past architecture from architecture on the way to architecture in this built world that we human beings have made for ourselves. And on the one hand, like you said, it affects us, but I think that it's easy to fail to realize how much it does affect us or even that it affects us at all because it's so much a part of life and it's so big. Like in literal mass, it is so big. Human beings don't create anything bigger than architecture. So would you agree that probably most people take architecture for granted? Oh, yeah. And and like you say, it's so big. What influence can you possibly have over it? (laughs) Look at what like these, they call it the commie block housing in a lot of Eastern European countries. I mean, the the environment there is very dull and it just is gray and cloudy and the buildings do not inspire. But yeah, I think people, they don't notice, oh, well, I could, that can be changed by human beings because... There are beautiful cities in Russia. They have beautiful architecture over there. So that's totally in our control, how we build these things, what we live in. And it's easy to think, well, these are all just things outside of my control. I mean, even just on a residential level, like you do have a lot of liberty for how you design the space that you're in, how you want it to feel. Obviously, you're probably not going to be able to build your own apartment building or whatever. So there's all of those constraints that are going to determine architecture. And and not just on an individual level, but even blowing that up to like a civil level, a culture and a government, like how they design impacts how does another nation view my nation? 
that is totally recognized. <laughs> and I mean, how you build your Capitol building is going to send a message to the rest of the world or the mansion that your president or prime minister lives in. So people, we know that it has an impact. We know that it sends a message. And yeah, a lot of people, I think, just accept living in pretty negative environments. (laughs) I think people, people accept it, whatever the environment. You're from Chicago. As a kid, I'm sure you thought, well, this is just how all buildings are built when you went downtown. Only when you're older, surely, did you know about the Chicago School of Architecture. My wife and I flew to Dublin, Ireland and went to the one of the big landmarks there, which is the Guinness Storehouse. And they're very proud of their Chicago-style architecture on that building. So architecture, this built environment, it's all around us. And we forget that someone did have power over what it would look like and how this would be built and how long it would last and how it would make people feel and what it would facilitate. So for that reason, what we're seeing in what we've built is a reflection of us. If not individually, it's a reflection of us as human beings, certainly as a society, as a nation or a community. What you are looking at, listener, as you're driving by, you know, the architecture of your town, the strip malls or the the quaint villages of Warwickshire or wherever you are, whatever end of the spectrum you're on, what you're seeing is a reflection of something. And the amount of effort, the amount of capital, the amount of resources, the amount of time it takes to create this built environment, of course, it's going to reflect the people who have built it in some way. It's a reflection. And we're not just talking about the builders themselves or the architects themselves, but this is a reflection of our society. And obviously, the architects and the builders most of all. Always, to me, I look at it and a lot of things in art, like it's a snapshot of the culture at that point. And architecture is so big and that it involves so many different components that (laughs) you can see the economics of that era. (laughs) Like, where was the wealth concentrated? You can see the art preferences of the elite at that time or, or, or the morality of people at that moment. And you've got that snapshot kind of built in this structure. You would look at music and you would look at paintings the same way. What does it say about that moment in time? And we are at a very strange moment <laughs> in time. That is true. You think of architecture, and if you realize that it is a reflection, uh, in the case of some buildings, it's a reflection of what we were like 400 years ago, what we valued, because that building is still there. But in our lifetimes, more recently, uh, we've been building, we've been designing, we've been creating architecture, and it's something else that is being reflected and doesn't look or feel right. Yeah. There is, like we were talking about before the show, there's a crisis in this movement where I think we talk about that account that we follow, Culture Critic, and he compares buildings that were demolished, that were beautiful. I'm thinking of this example in London. It's called One Poultry Street, London. And it was this beautiful Victorian building. And what they resurrected in its place looks like some sort of 80s playground thing. I mean, there's nothing culturally definitive about it. Like, no one's proud of this building. No one's proud to say that building is what makes me proud to live in London or to be English. And it that's happening all over the place. Like, you're losing the identity 
of the culture or the region. It's violating a lot of laws <laughs> of what we would say are beautiful, what we recognize as beauty. It's a crisis point. And again, like I was saying, it's not just architecture, it's art and it's music and it's all of these other things where, I don't know, like we're sick of the past or we need to redefine what we are. And now there's no definition. <laughs> if we're to blow that up to scale, you would get the number one poultry street. You would get that because you can see what it looked like before. And we'll put a link in the show notes. We see what it looked like before. And there's people who said, look, we're going to go through the effort of building this major building downtown at this convergence of probably three streets because it's a triangular shaped building like the Flatiron Building in New York. And so this is a prominent place. Everyone's going to walk by it. It's going to be in many ways, it's symbolic of this area, this neighborhood. If we're going to go through the effort to build this, let's make it beautiful, right? That's a way of thinking that is reflected in what the building actually looks like. This idea, this motivation to make it pleasant to look at, make it inspiring to look at, make it formidable to look like, make it <laughs> meaningful to look at. So with the benefit of decades, if not a century, from when the original was built to the replacement we have had advancements in metals. We've had advancements in masonry. We've had advancements in every type of building material possible so that presumably you could build something, I don't know, twice as beautiful. And yet they built something twice as terrible. <laughs> it's like self-harm. It reminds me of some kind of abuse. And that commentator that you mentioned uh, wrote that the intent is to demoralize you. Yeah, it is not, like you said, it's not for lack of resources. And a lot of people will say, well, it's more expensive to build ornate or it's more expensive to put, you know, these nice ornaments on buildings and, and to carve them out. It, that's the way we've done it for centuries. For thousands of years, we've all agreed that was beautiful. And there's this rebellion against that. We could easily do it. I look at it, I'm like, Either the architects are just lazy and aren't trying, or this, like you said, it's sending a message. When you build something like that, that prominently, you are trying to tell people something. And what is the message of a building like that? I was looking up some other examples of especially civil architecture, because that's like your cultural identifier. Right. What are these buildings what do people think when they see them? When you look at Washington, D.C., and you look at the architecture, what do you see? Uh, one building that just stands out to me is the new parliament building in Scotland. <laughs> people could look that up on their own. I mean, there is nothing Scottish about it. There's no, I'm sure maybe they tried to work in some cutesy little element into it, but when you look at that building, there's nothing that says law and order. There's nothing that says this is stability and this is wisdom. <laughs> this is where the lawmakers congregate. This is, again, it looks like a playhouse, like a playground in the 1980s. And this is a, a new design. So again, what's the message being sent? What, what do people not only think of when they see that, but you wonder, okay, well, what's the culture? What are the people like that work in there that are fine with this? That would have, no doubt, <laughs> approved the spending that was needed to build this thing. Right. 
And you and I were, were talking before the show. We talked about that it seems like there are a couple of reasons, two reasons why this is the case and why it's worth bringing to the listener's attention to see what it is that is being reflected every time we look at these buildings of our society. One is the cookie cutter mentality motivation, which is a problem. It reflects something about our society that we are achieving or that it's worth it to us to build something that's who knows how many tons of steel and and that steel or glass or whatever it's just economical to put up a curtain wall of glass on steel frame that's how we think that's who we are that's a reflection of our society so we've got these glass boxes so that's a problem and we need to address that we need to understand that that's a reflection of a way of thinking uh, we need to make a choice, as some cities have done in Europe and in other places where they had the beautiful old buildings, they knocked them down and replaced them with these glass shoeboxes standing on end or these block houses or playgrounds festooned with pointless metal and so forth. They've actually changed it back, some of them. I think maybe maybe Budapest is one. Yeah, well, like that blogger points out, I mean, Europe seems like is finally starting to see <laughs> this is a problem. <laughs> we, we are losing our identity in this, and they're going back. I mean, after World War II, a lot of those cities were bombed out, and they built them exactly the way they were. They didn't want some contemporary architecture of that time. It was, let's rebuild it the way it is, because this is who we are. And I, it seems like Europe is finally coming around to it. I mean, when I was over there and you'd travel through, especially a lot of the suburbs outside of the city, the way they build, I mean, they just look like Lego blocks stacked on top of each other. And it's really cheap and it's boring. There's nothing original about it. And I think they're waking up to the fact that we can do better. Money isn't the restraint we think it is. This was some infatuation we had with something new and it's bad. I think America is still, <laughs> I, I don't know how many years behind we are in realizing that. And I don't know how far it's going to go before, you know, like what, what does America look like? I think England, I mean, even regionally, they're so strict on you have to build your home this way or a building has to look this way because we're preserving the aesthetic of this town or of this area. I, there are certain parts of American cities that have that, but for the most part, it's going to be whatever's economic or whatever the architect <laughs> says goes. And he's the, the licensed architect and his group of friends who also went to college and are taught, you know, this is what beauty is. Right. Well, they're the authority on the subject. So whoever approves the spending, what are they going to say? And that's the second thing, because the first is the cookie cutter, the motivation to be cheap, <laughs> to just build the thing that's most profitable, regardless of human dignity or aspiration or sense of community. And when you've made that bargain, we will sacrifice beauty to live in pods. And that was a choice that we made. It was a wrong choice. And I think it was influenced by this idea that there is not a dignity of man as a creation of the creator. We just evolved. We just, there's nothing higher. So whether you're at a, you're a high-end contractor or whether you're an architect or whether you're a regular guy, we're all influenced by this concept that there's nothing higher. There's no inherent dignity to human beings. We're not the creations of a genius, brilliant creator. We're all influenced by that. And we accepted that. We accepted that 
made that compromise and it's reflected in the cheapness, the inhumanity, if I can put it that way, of those glass shoeboxes that we've been building. But then the last thing, the second thing that you touched on is kind of the other aspect of it. Some of this goes beyond this concept that, well, it's cheaper to build glass curtain walls than it is to hire a bunch of masons. Some things are lost arts, and we can talk about that all day long, but there's something else going on, right? Like with that Poultry Street building, there's something that people will pour millions of dollars and thousands of people's time into constructing the ugly, the grotesque, the demoralizing. So there's something really wrong with that. And it's half a block long. It's four stories. It's, and it looks like a mutated or a desiccated beetle. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of that one in London. I, I'm not sure the name of it, but we're going through a lot of effort. We're spending a lot of resources to build these things. And they're hideous to view from all angles, even aerial. And we're going to do it anyway. It's going to be here for decades. And there's something wrong with the human thinking that produces that. It's like a sore in the city that's visible. Yeah, and it. I was researching that executive order that Donald Trump had just before he left office. And it, it's really interesting how it's like these technocrats that design these things. And it's not the will of the people. I think any normal person that hasn't been trained... I, in air quotes, <laughs> in architecture would approach that building and objectively say, that is ugly. Right. But what power do they have? What control do they have? So you've got this little group of elites that decides, we're going to force this on you. We're deciding what this is. I was reading about 80s architecture, and it's that the Memphis group, I think is what it's called. And it literally is just like 15 or 20 people who decide on an aesthetic, and they're in high positions in the design world, in the architectural world. And that becomes the standard because the best in the business are doing it, not because the people really like it. I mean, what are you going to do? They're the shoe designers, and now they're making shoes, and you have to buy shoes. And it's going to look the way they want it to look. So, so like you said, it's being pushed on people when they don't even want it. In the United States, I mean, you could look up a list of recently built or planned to be built federal buildings, court, federal courthouses, federal buildings in D.C., and people hate them. Nobody wants that. But the federal government <laughs> has decided that this is how America is going to look. Yes, there's something that is harmful, that is negative, that is dejecting of the dignity of man, that is influencing our built world in America and in other nations as well, where things that people all can agree are beautiful and good are being passed over, are rejected, are being ridiculed in some cases. And the objectively ugly, the objectively grotesque is being exalted and built by pouring in millions of dollars and, as I said, thousands of people's time to erect these edifices that are reflecting an, an attitude, a motivation, a, a problem with our society. And we can kind of look at them and think, well, that's so, it's so enormous, there must be a good reason for it to be so ugly or for it to be so uninspired. But when you look at an image of a city from a better time, 
and you see more dignified buildings, you're seeing a reflection of the people who built them. And when you look at some of these buildings today, you're looking at a reflection of the people who built them. But there's things that are just objectively beautiful. It might be from the Far East or it might be from part of the world you've never been to. And you look at that and you, and you know, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's a different style or, you know, it's different materials or whatever, but it's clear just to look at an image of it, that it's meant to elevate human beings and be a blessing in that sense to human beings. And they created it for that purpose with a creative power that in itself is is uh, indication of, of human dignity, that creative faculty that we have. And when you see these things that are self-evidently ugly, whether it's a pair of shoes or whether it's an enormous building that everyone has to see and live with and move around, learn to evaluate that, you know, learn to notice it for one and learn to know that it was intentional and that there was something good about it or there's something bad about it. See that it is a reflection. It's a reflection of us, we human beings. So we could go on about architecture. We've got this book called A Pattern Language. And this book calls it The Quality That Can't Be Named, which is kind of a funny expression. But it's just this this idea that the sense of a building that's good, a building that's beautiful, a building that serves human beings And we are losing that in our architecture. And there is a reason for that. And it's connected to the reason that we are abusing ourselves with art. We're abusing ourselves with architecture. We're abusing ourselves with music and with these other forms of design. So it is something to be aware of, to recognize what it is you're seeing that's staring all of us in the face It is something to be aware of, to recognize what you're seeing and to think deeply about it and to recognize what is being reflected. Sam Livingston, thank you for joining us. Thanks for talking about one of my favorite, one of your favorite subjects, architecture and the built world. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Sam Livingston, producer and sometimes host for Trumpet Daily. You've heard him talk about a variety of topics, including politics of the day. Also, here a little bit of a treat, uh, something a little bit different architecture and what is reflected in it. That's Sam Livingston. I'm Philip Nice, and this is Trumpet Hour. is Trumpet Hour. There was a place, and I'm going to try to describe it. It's a challenge. I wish you'd been there. It was in the older part of the city, but you wouldn't have known that you were in the city. You were in gardens amid architecture, buildings with personality and distinctiveness, but blending with their mature trees surrounding them and fitting into their gentle hillsides or 
next to their sunken gardens or their man-made streams amid floss silk trees and magnolias and Japanese anemones and white birches, camellias, Norfolk Island pine, Morton Bay fig, Chinese wisteria, lemon-scented gums and deodores and Mexican fan palms, terraced and pathed. And I was there when I was a boy. And I visited again when I was a little bit older, teenager, and then early 20s. And whether it was then or whether it was even back when I was a boy, that place moved me. The best thing I can think of to compare it to is when you go to a concert of classical music and you see some people in the audience are emotionally moved by the music. There's no words. You could take the sound that you're hearing in in a variety of ways, but for them, it's emotional. For me, it's a certain place, a certain kind of place. And this place, I can walk through it in my mind right now, and I sort of am. The way the hill rises and the way the paths move and the way the streams intersect and go under and run alongside in the place where there's a a koi fish pond and the view down the slope over to the reflecting pool out of which rises the white tinted glass illuminance of the auditorium. I wish you'd been there and in the show notes I will share one link that I found that tries to capture a little part of it. And I used to wonder, even as a kid, why this place had this effect on me. And I realized that every square foot of this place had been designed by someone who cared. Someone cared. They did not know you. They did not know who would come or when they would come, but they wanted whoever would come to see this and to share in this and to be uplifted by it. Someone cared. And that place that I'm thinking of and that place that I'm seeing right now, I'm walking up the Grove Street stream right now, was the campus of Ambassador College, Pasadena, California. And the man who cared, the man who built it, was Herbert W. Armstrong. He's known to many of our listeners as an educator, as a teacher, as a preacher, as a broadcaster, as a a teacher of the Bible. He was all of those things. In addition to that, he was also a builder, and he built something beautiful, and I honor his memory for it. So because of him and because of those he brought in to design those spaces down to the last square foot, we shared that space in decades gone by, and you and I have shared this time over this past hour, and I am grateful that you cared to listen, to allow these humble suggestions for what to think about to be presented for your consideration. 
Jump at our listener. Email us your thoughts on the editing, on the hosting, on the subject of architecture, on information warfare, on the news of the day. Write it. Type it down if you have the chance. Letters at the trumpet.com is the email address. Letters at the trumpet.com. We appreciate when you're able to share your thoughts. Thank you for listening to Trumpet Hour. Join us for the Friday edition of the show that's coming up in just a couple days. Join us for Trumpet Hour Week Interview. And until then, thank you for listening. Thank you.